All right, so with that, let me say a word of prayer and we will jump in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this evening. We thank you for the ability to be able to gather in your name, to have worshiped, to have had a meal with fellowship. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would take away the things with which we were distracted during the day, and that you would help us to see the truth of your kingdom that is portrayed in this book by Lewis. We pray that you would help us to see truth from your kingdom, truth from your word, and ways that we can apply this in such a way that we might live more like Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen. So, let's start by saying our verse together once I get it up there on the screen for you. There we go. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this verse is particularly applicable as we look at these last two chapters of this book, and we see the nice exposed, we see the nice brought out into the light, and we see the shameful and disgusting and awful things that go on there when they are trying to be wise in the wisdom of the world. And you see the contrast between that and the beauty and truth and goodness that are part of those who are trying to follow Christ in the company of St. Anne's. I want to just say a word about the handouts. There are two handouts for tonight and a few leftovers of the one from last week. Um, the one from last week is really fascinating. Uh, I don't know how many of you read Business Insider, uh, but Business Insider is a very highly thought of um, financial publication. And this past fall, just a couple of months ago, they did this huge article on that hideous strength which is not the kind of thing they usually write about. And they said, everyone's talking about how 1984 seems to be coming true, but people have got it wrong. It's not 1984 or Brave New World, it's that hideous strength. And I don't think the guy's even a Christian, um, because he said, I can't think of any word to say but that Lewis was prophesying. Um, it really is just quite remarkable when you see that kind of testimony coming from an unexpected source. Then we have a really, an article that's short and made my heart glad. Classical architecture makes us happy, so why not build more of it? And it just references some of the things we were talking about last week uh, when Lewis has that brilliant chapter on the objectivity room that is full of ugliness. And then there's an excellent piece from the Society of Classical Learning um, looking at the linkages between the abolition of man and that hideous strength. All of these are pretty short, so even if you're a scuba diver, um, they should be well within your purview. This is not, I know some of my handouts did have 35 pages and 120 footnotes, uh, but these are not like that, so I would commend them to you. So just how to approach this class if you're new, um, joining us at the end, one thing I would tell people who are following online and just starting now, please go back to the beginning and catch up um, so that you understand everything. But we're glad to have new people. We have a new person this week from Ghana. So you just never know where people are going to find us online. Um, but you can be on the beach where you just are getting what you get and not doing any work at all. Or you can snorkel where you go deeper on the things that are interesting to you. Or scuba dive where you go through all of it. But I would encourage you, if you're listening and you're not on our email list, um, to please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston 
and uh, shoot me an email and I'll get you on the list and that way you will get the links to the handouts and all of those other things. So um, as we are wrapping up, one of the things you will notice is that in these last chapters, the themes from Abolition of Man really come to the fore in the book. And the sorts of things that Lewis was worried about, these last two chapters, you just see them in full flower or in full horror might be a better way of putting it. So uh, this is the culmination in these last couple of books of what happens in the Space Trilogy. So you remember in the Space Trilogy with Out of the Silent Planet, the very first thing that happens is Ransom is kidnapped and taken to Mars where he's supposed to be a human sacrifice. And then later he goes to Paralandra in the second book. This third book shows him marshalling the forces of the kingdom of God against the evil demons, uh, the bent one uh, on this earth. And then at the end of this book, he is going to be taken back to Paralandra. So uh, there's a beautiful symmetry and all of that. The image of the Tower of Babel uh, comes back full force in these last chapters as well. Of course, the title, That Hideous Strength, comes from the Tower of Babel and that theme all through this book of men thinking they don't need God, they can do better, they can use their own skills, they can make a better world, they can build bigger, better, more wonderful, they don't need God, they don't need scripture, they don't need morality, they don't need any of that. Uh, it is uh, possible for man to create utopia. And of course, we've seen that over and over and over again, and how often, um, not only does it fail, because it always fails, but how often there is carnage as a result of it. So, and a reminder that Lewis in the uh, preface tells us that this is a tall story about devilry, that it is not just people who have differences of opinion. This is about spiritual warfare and that the powers of darkness are real, that the powers of heaven are real and stronger than the powers of darkness, but we must not get lulled into that idea that there is no battle going on. So I'm not going to review all these chapters because uh, it would take forever since we are at the end of the book now, but I will review um, a little bit from last time. So chapter 14, Real Life is Meeting. Uh, this is a title that Lewis took from the work of Martin Buber, who was an influential existentialist philosopher and theologian, and his I-thou versus I-it sort of relationship. And Lewis is trying to talk about this idea that in-person meeting, not just meeting an idea or a concept, but meeting the, an embodied person, that that is where real life is. And that is particularly resonant after this pandemic. Uh, but in that particular chapter, we have the objectivity room, uh, which again is uh, like the nice, a name that does not reflect what really is happening. Uh, but the objectivity room is a room that you go into and it is made with bad architecture. Um, the arch is not symmetrical. There aren't any windows. The floor slants. There are these weird dots on the walls and on the furniture. And the art has various creepy things that are wrong with it. And the idea is that it's supposed to stamp out of you the idea that there's any such thing as real beauty or truth or goodness. But for Mark, our protagonist, it has exactly the opposite effect because it's so messed up that he becomes aware that there must be something real about objective beauty. So uh, Jane uh, continues on in her work with St. Anne's and in chapter 15, the gods actually descend uh, because they are going to come essentially and pray over Merlin. Um, these are like the angels of each planet. It doesn't, it's not exactly an analog in scripture, but that's sort of the idea that they're supposed to be like angels who are equipping Merlin, who's kind of this superhuman character, um, but they're trying to give him all of these gifts 
for him to be able to go into the nice. And the great thing is, remember, they kept talking about, especially McPhee, we need to do something. Evil is going to triumph. All of this evil is out there everywhere. How can we sit here and do nothing? And Ransom, the director, keeps saying, no, we must wait. We must wait. And that whole wait on the Lord that is just all through Scripture that none of us like, it's like praying for patience. We don't want to do that. And McPhee just gets so frustrated. But look what actually happens. What actually happens is they don't even have to figure out how to try to crash into the nice. They, the nice advertises for an interpreter, and they can send Merlin to the job interview, and he gets welcomed in by their enemies without their having to do a single thing. There was no tank explosion. There was no anything else. They just opened the doors and invited him in. And that is what happens when you wait on the Lord instead of trying to do things on your own. So Merlin gets hired as an interpreter to work with the nice, um, uh, to try to understand the tramp who they actually think is Merlin. So um, that brings us to chapter 16. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of Lewis. Um, it is horrible but it also is hilarious. There are parts of it that are just hilarious uh, with this confusion of speech. So the summary, the scheduled dinner party commences at Bellberry, the nice headquarters, with Jules, the figurehead directors of the keynote speaker, with the tramp, whom they believe to be Merlin, sitting at the high table, and the interpreter priest, the real Merlin, standing behind him. Jules begins speaking, but Wither soon notices that everything Jules says seems utterly nonsensical. All those in attendance who usually pay just enough attention to know when to laugh or applaud when customary were all staring agog at Jules. Wither decides to intervene, but though he thinks he's speaking sensible words to calm everyone, only gibberish comes out. Everyone stares and then panic begins to set in as they realize no one can understand anyone else. All speech is garbled. So Merlin has been using the power of Viratrobia, Mercury, the master of language, um, that was given to him to confuse their speech, similar to the confusion at the Tower of Babel. So next, Merlin sneaks out of the banquet room and releases all the animals the Nysus held captive for their experiments. Remember, there's this zoo that they've gotten with all these different kinds of animals, and they're doing horrible experiments on them and trying to merge humans and animals and all, just all kinds of awful stuff. But Merlin goes out there and lets every single one of them loose. So these animals find their way into the banquet room where they cause more panic and mayhem and death. The elephant who breaks in through the front door causes sheer terror. And in the confusion, Fairy Hardcastle, the head of the nice police, shoots Jules, the figurehead director, fatally. She keeps shooting again and again, furthering the wild terror, and then soon she herself ends up dead. So Mark blacks out in all of this commotion. Merlin wakes him up by splashing cold water on his face, and he sees the room filled with this hideous confusion of mangled people awash in food, filth, and spoiled luxury. Merlin delivers a note to Mark saying his wife's waiting for him at St. Anne's and to come quickly. And Merlin strikes Mark on the back, which sends him running supernaturally fast. It's like the Energizer bunny on steroids. So Mark is gone to St. Anne's. Meanwhile, Wither escapes this melee in the dining room. He figures out that everything is lost. He sees that the powers of deep heaven have reached the earth despite the assurances his dark masters, the demons, gave him that they could not. He had been told by the dark powers that the powers of good, the forces of God, were not going to be able to interfere with them. So he and Strake and Philostrato gather to worship the head in this like really creepy scene. And the head demands, a demands more sacrifice, so they kill Philostrato. The head demands a further sacrifice than that, so whether kills Strake. This is exactly what you see that we've talked about before, that demons consume each other. It all leads to death. The wages of sin is death. That is a law of the universe. So meanwhile, Mr. Bultitude, the bear, 
uh, who remember they uh, captured when he had escaped over the wall from St. Anne's. He appears in the headroom being released by Merlin and he kills Wither um, and the head. Feverstone decides to escape Belberry by car, but his car ends up uh, in trouble and he ends up in an earthquake. Frost, the creepy guy with the little beard and the pince-nez, he's the last one standing. And after he sees everything that's gone wrong, he goes into the objectivity room. That's very important because that's where he goes. He goes into the objectivity room, covers himself in gasoline and lights a fire and kills himself, realizing that everything he believed in was utterly wrong. And Belberry and the knights are completely defeated and literally wiped away by the end of the evening. Yes, indeed. So in chapter 17, um, things at St. Anne's are very interesting. Mark gets a ride from a truck driver um, to go to St. Anne's, but he's very nervous, because remember, he's been on this enemy team, and he's going now into what is the headquarters of the opposition of that. So he's going to see Jane, and it's humiliating, because remember, they've been in competition with each other about who can get to the higher inner circle, and obviously he chose the wrong group. So now he's humiliated, and he has to go be with her people. So he goes in, and the ladies are up there wandering through a wardrobe full of these robes, and they help each other find these elegant, sumptuous dresses, and then there is this sort of shock like an earthquake. Um, Feverstone um, is swallowed up by the earthquake. Curry, um, who we met back in the first chapter, who was this minor college official, um, he's very excited about all of this stuff being destroyed because he thinks now he's going to be able to have a career and he can be in charge of the college. A little naive. Uh, meanwhile, back at St. Anne's, Dumble is explaining to the group that Logros, Old England, has always struggled against Britain and seeks to prod it out of its stupor. He says that the last in a long unbroken line of Pendragons passed the office to Ransom, who will pass it to someone else before leaving for Avalon, uh, which is like heaven where Arthur still lives. Ransom declares that Venus herself um, from Perilandra is over St. Anne's. Mr. Bultitude the bear comes back with a female bear. The director lays hands on them. They blunder out together into the garden. The other animals pair off. Ransom lays his hand on the dimples, and they pair off. Ivy goes off with her husband, and finally he sends Jane off to be with Mark. At the lodge where Mark is waiting, he's reflecting on all his failings as a husband, and he expects that Jane is going to send him away. And suddenly he notices someone like a woman, divinely tall, inhumanly beautiful, opening a door for him. He goes in and he finds this richly appointed chamber, and Jane goes into the light and warmth of the garden and across to the lawn, and she wonders whether Mark will still want her after all that has happened, but she sees the bedroom window open and that he's there, and she goes in the door, and that's the end. So, uh, there is so much going on here, we are just going to scratch the surface. But there are some wonderful passages that are important that we're going to look at. So, the first one from chapter 16. For the first few minutes, anyone glancing down the long tables would have seen what we always see on such occasions. There were the placid faces of elderly bon viveurs, whose food and wine had placed in a contentment which no amount of speeches could violate. There were the patient faces of responsible but serious diners who had long since learned how to pursue their own thoughts while attending to the speech just enough to respond wherever a laugh or a low rumble of serious assent was obligatory. There was the usual fidgety expression on the faces of young men unappreciative of port and hungry for tobacco. There was bright over elaborate attention on the powdered faces of women who knew their duty to society. But if you had gone on looking down the tables, you would presently have seen a change. You would have seen face after face look up and turn in the direction of the speaker. You would have seen first curiosity, then fixed attention, then incredulity. Finally, you would have noticed that the room was utterly silent without a cough or a creak, that every eye was fixed on jewels, and soon every mouth opened in something between fascination and horror. 
To different members of the audience, the change came differently. To Frost, it began at the moment when he heard Jules end a sentence with words as gross an anachronism as to trust to Calvary for salvation in modern war. Cavalry, thought Frost, almost aloud. Why couldn't the fool mind what he was saying? The blunder irritated him extremely. Perhaps, but hello, what was this? Had his hearing gone wrong? For Jules seemed to be saying that the future density of mankind depended on the implosion of the horses of nature. He's drunk, thought Frost. Then crystal clear in articulation, beyond all possibility of mistake, came the madrigor of virtues must be Talthabianized. Whether had not forgotten a moment that there were reporters present, that in itself did not matter much. If anything unsuitable appeared in tomorrow's paper, it'd be child's play for him to say the reporters were drunk or mad or break them. On the other hand, he might let the story pass. Jules was in many respects a nuisance, and this might be as good an opportunity as any other for ending his career. But this was not the immediate question. Wither was wondering whether he should wait till Jules sat down or whether he should rise and interrupt him with a few judicious words. He did not want a scene. It would be better if Jules sat down of his own accord. At the same time, there was by now an atmosphere in that crowded room which warned Wither not to delay too long. Glancing down at the second hand of his watch, he decided to wait two minutes more. Almost as he did so, he knew he had misjudged it. An intolerable falsetto laugh rang out from the bottom of the table and would not stop. Some fool of a woman had gotten hysterics. Immediately, Wither touched Jules on the arm, signed him with a nod, and rose. Eh? Blotcher Bouldou? muttered Jules. But Wither, laying his hand on the little man's shoulder, quietly but with all his weight, forced him down into a sitting position. Then Wither cleared his throat. He knew how to do that so that every eye in the room turned immediately to look at him. The women stopped screaming. People who had been sitting dead still in strained positions moved and relaxed. Wither looked down the room for a second or two in silence, feeling his grip on the audience. He saw that he already had them in hand. There would be no more hysterics. Then he began to speak. They ought to have all looked more and more comfortable as he proceeded, and there ought soon to have been murmurs of grave regret for the tragedy they had just witnessed. That was what Wither expected. What he actually saw bewildered him. The same too attentive silence which had prevailed during Jules's speech had returned. Bright, unblinking eyes and open mouths greeted him in every direction. That woman began to laugh again. Or no, this time it was two women. Kosser, after one frightened glance, jumped up, overturning his chair, and bolted from the room. The deputy director could not understand this, for to him, his own voice seemed to be uttering the speech he had resolved to make. But the audience heard him saying, Tidies and Fugelman, shield for that we all err, most steeply rebut the defensible, though I trust lavatory. Aspasia, which gleams to have selected a redeemed inspector this deceiving, it would I be shark, very shark, from anyone's debenture. So what's happened, and remember the nice, they are the masters of robbing language of its meaning. They are the masters of doublespeak. They are the masters of taking the gift of language and trampling it and using it for evil ends. And so all of what they have done has been turned back on their heads. And so we get this confusion of language that Merlin has wrought, and it is the ultimate fruit of the corruption of language and doublespeak. The things that they've been doing, the consequences, have turned back and landed on their own heads. So it keeps going. Frost was the only one of the leaders who attempted to say nothing. Instead, he had penciled a few words on a slip of paper, beckoned to a servant, and made him understand by signs that it was to be given to Miss Hardcastle. By the time the message was put into her hands, the clamor was universal. To Mark, it sounded like the noise of a crowded restaurant in a foreign country. Miss Hardcastle smoothed out the paper, and stooped her head to read. The message ran, blunt frippers, instantly, to pointed bedeluroid, purgent, cost. She crumpled it up in her hand. So the confusion of language has gone to the writing, too. It's not just oral, it's everywhere. Miss Hardcastle had known before she got the message that she was three parts drunk. 
She had expected and intended to be so. She knew that later on in the evening she would go down to the cells and do things. There was a new prisoner there, a little fluffy girl of the kind the fairy enjoyed, with whom she could pass an agreeable hour. Uh, the tumult of gibberish did not alarm her. She found it exciting. Apparently, Frost wanted her to take some action. She walked to the door, locked it, put the key in her pocket, and then turned to survey the company. She noticed for the first time that neither the supposed Merlin nor the Basque priest were anywhere to be seen. Weather and Jules, both on their feet, were struggling with each other. She set out towards them. So many people had now risen that it took her a long time to reach them. All semblance of a dinner party had disappeared. It was more like the scene at a London terminus on a bank holiday. Everyone was trying to restore order, but everyone was unintelligible, and everyone, in the effort to be understood, was talking louder and louder. She shouted several times herself. She even fought a good deal before she reached her goal. There came an ear-splitting noise, and after that, at last, a few seconds of dead silence. Mark noticed first that Jules had been killed, only secondly that Miss Hardcastle had shot him. After that, it was difficult to be sure what happened. The stampede and the shouting may have concealed a dozen reasonable plans for disarming the murderers, but it was impossible to connect them. Nothing came of them but kicking, struggling, leaping on tables and under tables, pressing on and pulling back, screams, breaking of glass. She fired again and again. Suddenly, the confusion of cries ran altogether into one thin, long, drawn noise of terror. Everyone had become more frightened. Something had darted very quickly across the floor between the two long tables and disappeared under one of them. Perhaps half the people present had not seen what it was, had only caught a gleam of black and tawny. Those who had seen it clearly could not tell the others. They could only point and scream meaningless syllables. But Mark had recognized it. It was a tiger. So you see in this, in this utter melee, the complete devaluing of life. There's nothing of the sacredness of life. It's all been drummed out in the scene. And Fairy Hardcastle is sort of the exemplar of someone who's been utterly corrupted. And so there's all of this shooting and people being trampled. Um, and it's all the consequences of having embraced evil. Everything that happens in there is because of what the nice is and what they've done and what they've done to the people that are part of it. So it just keeps getting more horrible. Above the chaos of sounds which now awoke, there seemed to be a new animal in the room every minute. There came at last one sound in which those still capable of understanding could take comfort. Thud, thud, thud. The door was being battered from the outside. It was a huge folding door, a door by which a small locomotive could almost enter, for the room was made in imitation of Versailles. Already one or two of the panels were splintering. The noise maddened those who had made that door their goal. It seemed also to madden the animals. They did not stop to eat what they killed, or not more than to take one lick of the blood. There were dead and dying bodies everywhere by now, for the scrum was by this time killing as many as the beast. And always from all sides went up the noises, trying to shout to those beyond the door, quick, quick, hurry, but shouting only nonsense. Louder and louder grew the noise of the door, as if in imitation a great gorilla leaped on the table where Jules had sat and began drumming on its chest. Then with a roar, it jumped down into the crowd. So you see here this whole disrespect for God's creation, the way these animals have been treated and abused, and they are now coming back, and they are wreaking havoc because of the way that they've been treated. And the great irony here is the people think that the door is being battered down by people coming to help, but the door is actually being battered down by a giant elephant that's getting ready to come trampling through that room. So it is awful. And you see this whole idea of the torture that went on with the animals, the torture that Fairy Hardcastle did, that torture abusing God's creation is right in the center of the purpose of the nice. So it was Merlin who brought release to both. He had left the dining room as soon as the curse of Babel 
was well fixed upon the enemies. No one had seen him go. Whether had once heard his voice calling loud and intolerably glad above the riot of nonsense. Qui verbum dei contempserunt, eis offeritur etiam verbum hominis. In other words, they that have despised the word of God, from them shall the word of man also be taken away. And this is a really important sentence because this goes right back to abolition of man. Um, it's the recurrence of this idea of Babel, and it's the consequences of the rejection of the logos, the logos in all its fullness. Logos as meaning simply word, logos as meaning Jesus, the one who was the logos at creation, and logos, the organizing principle of reality, which Derrida and Foucault and all of those guys that we talked about earlier were trying to deconstruct, and they're building an entire system of philosophy to dismantle the logos. And so this idea is that when you despise the word of God, then even the word of man will be taken away. That truth will vanish, that there will be no such thing as truth. Good and beauty vanish. All of these things, massive, massive consequences from this kind of rejection. And we're going to get to some more of that in a little bit. It does get happy eventually. So, but not yet. Wither was not among those killed in the dining room. He naturally knew all the possible ways out of the room, and even before the coming of the tiger, he had slipped away. He understood what was happening, if not perfectly, yet better than anyone else. He saw that the Basque interpreter, they think the real Merlin is a Basque priest, um, he saw the Basque interpreter had done the whole thing. And by that, he knew also that powers more than human had come down to destroy Belberry. Only one in the saddle of whose soul rode Mercury himself could thus have unmade language. And this again told him something worse. It meant that his own dark masters had been completely out in their calculations. They had talked of a barrier which made it impossible that powers from deep heaven should reach the surface of the earth, had assured him that nothing from outside could pass the moon's orbit. All their polity was based on the belief that Talos Earth was blockaded beyond the reach of such assistance and left to their mercy and his. Therefore, he knew that everything was lost. Notice everything his masters told him was a lie. It's just like that old fable about the scorpion. It's in his nature to sting. It is the nature of the powers of darkness to lie. So you see here that evil and the powers of darkness have claimed that they've won the victory. They've claimed that they've triumphed. They've claimed that they are going to dominate the world, and they were utterly, utterly wrong because the forces of the kingdom of God are much superior to the forces of darkness. So, moving along. Indicative mood now corresponded to no thought that his mind could entertain. He had willed with his whole heart that there should be no reality and no truth. And now even the eminence of his own ruin could not wake him. The last scene of Dr. Faustus, where the man raves and implores on the edge of hell, is perhaps stage fire. The last moments before damnation are not often so dramatic. Often the man knows with perfect clarity that some still possible action of his own will could yet save him. But he cannot make this knowledge real to himself. Some tiny habitual sensuality, some resentment too trivial to waste on a blue bottle, that's a fly, the indulgence of some fatal lethargy seems to him at that moment more important than the choice between total joy and total destruction. And this again is right back to abolition of man, that when you choose over and over and over against the objective true, the objective good, the objective beautiful, you will be a man without a chest and you will be unable, even when confronted with the error of your ways, you will be unable to backtrack and to choose good. It's that inevitable fruit of wrong choices. It's the same thing that we see in Romans 1 and what I think is some of the most chilling part of all of Scripture where it talks about all the ways people rebel against God 
and then it says, and God gave them over. God gave them over to pursue whatever things they were pursuing. Okay, now we get to the really gross scene. In the end, the three men stood naked before the head. Gaunt, big-boned, straight, philostrato, a wobbling mountain of fat, whether an obscene senility. Then the high ridge of terror from which Philostrato was never again to descend was reached, for what he thought impossible began to happen. No one had read the dials, adjusted the pressures, or turned on the air and the artificial saliva. Yet words came out of the dry, gaping mouth of the dead man's head. A door, it said. Philostrato felt his companions forcing his body forward, then up again, then forwards and downwards a second time. He was compelled to bob up and down in rhythmic obeisance, the others meanwhile doing the same. Almost the last thing he heard was Wither beginning to chant, then Straight joined in. Then horribly he found he was singing himself, Uroborendra, 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 Babahi. But not for long, another, said the voice, give me another head. Philostrato knew at once why they were forcing him to a certain place in the wall. He had devised it all himself. In the wall that separated the head's room from the antechamber, there was a little shutter. When drawn back, it revealed a window in the wall and a sash to that window, which could fall quickly and heavily. But the sash was a knife. The little guillotine had not been meant to be used like this. They were going to murder him uselessly, unscientifically. If he were doing it to one of them, all would have been different. Everything would have been prepared weeks beforehand. The temperature of both rooms exactly right. The blade sterilized, the attachments all ready to be made almost before the head was severed. He had even calculated what changes the terror of the victim would probably make in his blood pressure. The artificial bloodstream would be arranged accordingly so as to take over its work with the least possible breach of continuity. His last thought was that he had underestimated the terror. But this just shows you the all-consuming nature of evil. And you also see this coming full circle that Lewis keeps doing in this chapter, that he's killed by the very thing he devised to kill others. There's great irony in that. And again, just this whole wages of sin as death. And again, think about chapter 7 that I keep harking back to, that beautiful chapter where Jane walks in to ransom the director's room and the beauty and the gold and the light and the melodious voice and how she says her whole world is unmade because she is so filled with the whole concept of worship and holiness. Contrast that to the head yelling a door. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. But that's the contrast that there is between following Jesus and following the world. The world dresses itself up pretty well, but the fact of the matter is this is where it ends up. So, a little more murder for you. The two initiates, red from top to toe, gazed at each other, breathing heavily. Almost before the fat, dead legs and buttocks of the Italian had ceased quivering, they were driven to begin the ritual again. Uroborindra, 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 Bababi. The same thought struck both of them at one moment. It will ask for another. And Strake remembered that Wither had that knife. He wrenched himself free from the rhythm with a frightful effort. Claws seemed to be tearing his chest from inside. Wither saw what he meant to do. As Strake bolted, Wither was already after him. Strake reached the anteroom, slipped in Philostrato's blood. Wither slashed repeatedly with his knife. He had not strength to cut through the neck, but he had killed the man. He stood up, pains gnawing at his old man's heart. Then he saw the Italian's head lying on the floor. It seemed to him good to pick it up and carry it into the inner room to show it to the original head. He did so. Then he realized something was moving in the anteroom. Could it be that they had not shut the outer door? He could not remember. They had come in forcing Philostrato along between them. It was possible everything had been so abnormal. He put down his burden carefully, almost courteously, even now, and stepped toward the door between the two rooms. Next moment, he drew back. A huge bear, rising into its hind legs as he came in sight of it, had met him in the doorway. 
its mouth open, its eyes flaming, its forepaws spread out as if for an embrace. Was this what Strake had become? He knew, though even now he could not attend to it, that he was on the very frontier of a world where such things could happen. So again, it's this all-consuming nature of evil, that evil begets evil, and it just builds on itself the wages of sin is death. Like the clockwork figure he'd chosen to be, his stiff body, now terribly cold, walked back into the objective room, poured out the petrol, and threw a lighted match into the pile. Not till then did his controllers allow him to suspect that death itself might not, after all, cure the illusion of being a soul, nay, might prove the entry into a world where that illusion raged infinite and unchecked. Escape for the soul, if not for the body, was offered him. He became able to know and simultaneously refuse the knowledge that he had been wrong from the beginning, that souls and personal responsibility existed. He half saw, he wholly hated. The physical torture of the burning was not fiercer than his hatred of that. With one supreme effort, he flung himself back into his illusion. In that attitude, eternity overtook him as sunrise and old tales overtakes trolls and turns them into unchangeable stone. And so again, here you see the eternal consequences of choosing evil over God and this whole death culture that is all through the night. So that the ultimate result, everything that they do is leading toward death. It may be dressed up, it may be disguised, it may look good for a while in the eyes of the world, but it is ultimately leading to death. And that death is death of the body is not the end because the spiritual world is real. And so there is, there is eternity either with God or without God. So we're done with that chapter, hooray. Uh, so Venus at St. Anne's. So here's Mark. For Mark now thought that with all his lifelong eagerness to reach an inner circle, he had chosen the wrong circle. Jane was where she belonged. He was going to be admitted only out of kindness because Jane had been fool enough to marry him. He did not resent it, but he felt shy. He saw himself as this new circle must see him, as one more little vulgarian, just like the Steels and the Cossars, dull, inconspicuous, frightened, calculating, cold. He wondered vaguely why he was like that. How did other people, people like Deniston or Dimble, find it so easy to saunter through the world with all their muscles relaxed and a careless eye roving the horizon, bubbling over with fancy and humor, sensitive to beauty, not continually on their guard and not needing to be? What was the secret of that fine, easy laughter which he could not by any efforts imitate? Everything about them was different. They could not even fling themselves into chairs without suggesting by the very posture of their limbs a certain lordliness, a leonine indolence. There was elbow room in their lives as there had never been in his. They were hearts. He was only a spade. And this is a beautiful description of just the emptiness of secularism. And of course, Dimble and Deniston are both people who are profoundly committed Christians. And Mark sees that their lives are qualitatively and quantitatively different from his own and from any experience he's ever had. So skipping down, uh, there's a discussion going on with some of the women um, about the director having said that he's going to leave to go to Paralandra. It isn't that, she said. Where will the director himself be? But you can't want him to stay, Ivy said Camilla, not in continual pain. And his work will be done if all goes well at Edgestow. He has longed to go back to Paralandra, said Mother Dimble. He's sort of homesick, always, always. I could see it in his eyes. And this is just a little bit about that longing for heaven, which is a major theme in so much of what Lewis writes, that longing of knowing that even on our best days, if you're a Christian, that this world is not our home and that we are made for a different world where all of those longings will be satisfied. And so we're seeing that expressed through Ransom here. And then this uh, little dialogue um, that happens at the end with Ransom. You have done what was required of you, said the director. You have obeyed and waited. 
It will often happen like that. As one of the modern authors has told us, the altar must often be built in one place in order that the fire from heaven may descend somewhere else. If one is thinking simply of goodness and the abstract, one soon reaches the fatal idea of something standardized, some common kind of life to which all nations ought to progress. Of course, there are universal rules to which all goodness must conform, but that is only the grammar of virtue. It's not there that the sap is. He doesn't make two blades of grass the same, how much less two saints, two nations, two angels. The whole work of healing Talus, the earth, depends on nursing that little spark on incarnating that ghost, which is still alive in every real people and different in each. Now you could spend a long time on that because there's a lot of theology on there, but basically what he's talking about is that goodness is real. There's such a thing as good with a capital G, but that there is great beauty in the way that God has made every person with every person having a spark of who God is in them and that goodness flowering in a uniquely beautiful way in each soul and each life that is given over to Christ. And there's a beautiful poem, um, if you are scuba diving, uh, that is called Mythopoeia that Tolkien wrote for Lewis uh, after the conversation that led to Lewis's conversion. And in that poem, Tolkien talks about God as this great, beautiful beam of golden white light and that that beam shines out into our earth, and then as it comes to earth, it refracts, and there's this whole spectrum of all of these little dots. There are all these different beautiful colors that when you put all of them together, it makes the whole colors of the rainbow. And he talks about how each one of those little dots reflects the image of God in a unique way, but you don't get the fullness of the image of God without all of those dots together. And I could go on and on about that, but I will stop for now. Uh, so in the last little part, uh, as everyone is going off um, and Ransom is blessing all of these couples, he says this, on the contrary, said Ransom, decent in the old sense, decent's fitting is just what Venus is. Venus herself is over St. Anne's. She comes more near the earth than she was wont, quoted Dimble, to make men mad. She is nearer than any astronomer knows, says Ransom. The work at Edgestow is done. The other gods have withdrawn. She waits still, and when she returns to her sphere, I will ride with her. And part of what Ransom is demonstrating here is the rightness of love between male and female. And he's going right back to Genesis, right back to the creation. God made them in his own image, male and female, he created them. And that there is glory in the differences between male and female and beauty in the way that God has called them together to reflect the fullness of his image. And of course, that whole concept is under massive attack uh, in our world right now. But it's interesting that Lewis makes that what he closes with and the story, how very important understanding that God made, that God created male and female, and that that creation is the fullness of his image. So uh, then there's this great line. Uh, they are the liberated prisoners from Belberry, said the director. She comes more near the earth than she was wont to to make earth sane. Paralandra is all about us and man is no longer isolated. We are now as we ought to be, between the angels who are our elder brothers and the beast who are our jesters, servants, and playfellows. And this is the idea, again, going back to Genesis, of the goodness of the restoration of the created order. You'll remember if you've read Paralandra that it is the story of the creation without the fall. And it is just this beautiful, incredible creative, magnificent description um, of a place where there is no sin, where there is no evil, where it never came. And so um, Paralandra comes back to bring that order back, that Genesis created order of man and woman, the beast who are created for man to steward 
the beauty of the earth and the garden that man is to steward and to tend. And then the very last little part, Jane's dialogue with Ransom. Must I go now, she said, if you leave the decision with me, it is now that I would send you. Then I will go, sir, but, but am I a bear or a hedgehog? More, but not less. Go in obedience and you will find love. You will have no more dreams. Have children instead. Urendi Maladil. Urendi Maladil is the blessing of God. And so what, what he's saying is that Jane, throughout all of her life, remember she just finally became a Christian um, in the chapters we looked at last week. Through all of her life, she has never practiced or understood obedience. Her only obedience is to herself and to her own self-actualization. And so this concept of obedience to another, obedience to God, obedience in her marriage, any of those kinds of things, that is such a radical concept. But what Ransom is telling her is that when you are in that kind of obedience that's rooted in Christ, that is where you find love. And that having children, again, this goes right back to that male and female. Remember the first commandment in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. That whole idea of the privilege of childbearing that Jane has chosen to reject, that she chose that, I don't want to fool with that, I don't want to have that, um, that gets in the way of who I am, which again is very resonant right now. But she understands because of what happened in that room in chapter 7 when she encountered Ransom that his way is deeper and more beautiful and more profound and full of joy in a way that nothing that she's experienced can even touch. So Lewis ends it um, right after that uh, when she goes back to the lodge where Mark is. So themes that appear in this chapter, um, confusion of language, the ultimate fruit of corruption of language and doublespeak um, in that banquet, um, the whole devaluing of life, which is one of the consequences of embracing evil, um, how this evil and disrespect of objective goodness, beauty, and truth leads to disrespect for creation, um, normalizing torture, uh, this whole recurrence of Babel, the consequences of rejecting logos, um, the fact that evil and the powers of darkness, even though they may seem to be triumphing, they are inferior. They have been defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, the inevitable fruit of wrong choices and this whole idea of God gave them over, the all-consuming nature of evil, the wages of sin is death, the consequences when you choose evil over God, the emptiness of secularism, the longing for heaven, the power of obedience and faithful waiting, the power of living into God's unique design for each person, the rightness of love between male and female, the goodness of the restoration of the created order, and the blessing of living into God's design. So some practices of hope and wisdom. The first one, value language as a gift, using it rightly and choosing to speak only truth. When you live in a world where language is so devalued as it is in ours, it's easy to just sort of give up about that. But if all of the people who were Christians would practice using language well and speaking truth and choosing not to speak lies, um, it could be transformative. And there's this great passage from Luke 6, where there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And we as Christians are the ones who have the Holy Spirit filling our heart, the ones who understand about the objective beauty, truth, and goodness in creation. We have a mandate that we need to speak, that we need to not be drawn into all of the negativity of the world, but to speak the things of the kingdom of God. Secondly, cultivate a reverence 
for the sacred of, sacredness of life and for God's creation. And you see this in the Genesis accounts, the, the beauty, how everything God made, he said, it is good. And when he gets to man, it was very good. And this, we've lost this idea of the sacredness of life. And it is something that we need to reclaim. It is part and parcel of what the scriptures teach. And there's this beautiful verse from Job chapter 12. Ask the beast, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you. Who amid all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And we would do well to meditate on that because that is another concept that is just gone in the world. Thirdly, be alert to the power of evil to seduce and arm yourself against it. And we've seen this verse before. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then from 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee is a big, strong word. That's like get out of a building that's on fire, run with all your might. But look at the second part, pursue. That is also a big, strong word. Pursue with all your might these qualities, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, but not by yourself. You're not running alone. You are running with a pack, those who call on the Lord's name out of a pure heart. And that gives us purpose to our fellowship. Fourthly, practice faithful obedience in times of waiting. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. And Lewis does such a great job of showing this with the company at St. Anne's of how um, people are pushing them, do this, do this, do this, do this. And certainly he does, Ransom says, the time for action has come, but they've been waiting and he's been waiting on the Lord and praying and speaking with the heavenly powers, waiting for exactly the right time. And when he does that and that time arrives, the doors just open in ways that they could, it's like that collect that we pray that's so beautiful, um, better things than we could ask or imagine. And that's exactly what happens here. And lastly, lean into God's design for your life and refuse to be controlled by secular gods. If I asked any of you, are you being controlled by the secular gods? You would say, no, of course not. Or if you asked me, I would say, no, of course not. But we forget that we are pressed on by secularism all the time. And we have to be careful in our thinking and we have to make sure that we are leaning into our relationship with God and leaning into his design for us and for our life. Um, and this is another just beautiful verse from Corinthians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And this is the same verse, if you know that song, Yet not I, but Christ in me, which is a great one to meditate on. And then, of course, Philippians 2, For it is God who works in you, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So we have gotten to the end of the book. Congratulations for hanging in there. Um, we are going to next week do a wrap up because there's so much in this book. I know it probably seems like we've been in this book forever, um, but I will tell you, I could have spent five years in this book there's so much we could have unpacked, but what I want to do next week is draw some of the big themes out that I think are the important takeaways for us. Um, next fall, we are more than likely going to be studying Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. So if you want a little summer reading, uh, that could be a good one to lean into. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you that evil in all of its horror and brutality and ugliness does not triumph, 
because your kingdom is eternal. You have won the battle and you have won the war on the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of that, the objectivity of goodness and truth and beauty are things that we can perceive in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that as we walk as strangers and sojourners in this time, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we would remember the lessons that we see in this book, and that they would motivate us to live for you with our whole heart. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in this week to come, and that you would keep us close by your side. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. If you have anyone in here you haven't met, please try to do that before you go. And do, if you didn't get the handouts, do pick those up. Thanks.